Welcome to the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. I'm your host today with Kevin Reeves, and our guest is a good buddy of mine named Brett Voorhees from Taurus. He's the CEO. He became CEO at age 32, which is the youngest CEO in the history of the firearms industry, modern firearms industry. Maybe, um, yeah, probably. And you're here, you're from Oregon, and we're going to have some conversations about all kinds of good stuff. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad you can make it. So, where'd you grow up? Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, How do you here take we go. your coffee? Oh, generally uh, almost completely black, just a little splash of oat milk or something in there, but mm. pretty strong, generally. How, how did you like the espresso pour that you had from the uh, our CEO, Evan Hafer? Um, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. It was fantastic, <laughs> but I don't know if that's good enough. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how I can replicate that without investing in all that expensive equipment that he had in there. Um, but certainly my Nespresso machine that's in my office at work, it won't do that. So it was maybe, great. Maybe it was we fantastic. could rectify that. Maybe yeah. we could help you with that. We'll, so you could have magic in your mouth in the morning. Yeah. yeah. We'll yeah. get you uh, some coffee kits and stuff and pour over and all that stuff. Yeah, that's good. For sure. It's real good. Um, yeah, it's the Director Geisha, and it's fantastic. Like, I don't normally think that espresso tastes good. This actually is really, really good. I, I have not had an espresso that tasted like oh. that at all. It's fantastic. So, all right, where'd you grow up? I uh, grew up on the West Coast, born in California, but very quickly moved to Oregon. Um, grew up there almost my entire life uh, until my kind of career got rolling, and then I kind of took a jump and moved. But, yeah, I grew up outside of Portland, uh, went to high school, went to college there, University of Oregon, um, started my career in the firearm industry there. Um, yeah, kind of grew up hunting and fishing out there and all the great stuff that state does offer. So, and you, uh, you wrestled and played football in high school. Wrestled, played football in high school. And you were going to wrestle at Oregon. H- had some ambition to wrestle at Oregon. Um, I had an a invite to walk on, which basically meant go to practice and get my ass kicked by. Preferred walk on status. Very familiar like with that. Some, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, my freshman year, the wrestling program got cut at Oregon. Um, but I had the opportunity to go to a couple practices. We actually had a national champion, uh, Shane Webster, at my weight, which was 184. So I had zero chance of ever actually competing. But, um, yeah, after a couple practices and things like that, it's like program's not even going to be here. It's not uh, not worth it. So I was just focused on school and beer and girls. So I, so I played football in college my first two years, and I learned, like you, on the third day at practice that – my best years were behind me, and I had reached my peak, and we were on the downslide. <laughs> Day three, I learned how good I wasn't. Yeah, it was like it, it, it's an eye opener, like because you're like, oh man, you know, like I'm good, and then you get, you know, you're you're working with what's with great athletes, yeah, and you're like, oh, oh, okay, so I get it, okay, all right. Yeah, when yeah, some yeah. of them are built different, so I went to a wrestling camp at the Tar Heels house in North Carolina, and you know, you're just sweating, and you're not in your singlet or anything else. Yeah. A guy in my same weight class I tie up with, and his arms are twice the size Just of mine. But they're in yeah. long sleeves. Yeah. And you couldn't see you them. Couldn't like, see, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, and I was always kind of taller and lankier, mm-hmm. you know. I was, you know, real slim growing up. Um, I think my freshman year of high school, I was like 140 weight class. I'm the same height, 6'2". So it's like no muscle. And then I kind of worked up. And by the time I got out of football senior year, I was probably like 215. Mm-hmm. And... You know, it's probably boring to talk about, but cut a lot of weight down to like 171, but was 
very, very trimmed up at that weight. Would you? Um, what were you going to wrestle at in college or freshman? One eighty four. One eighty four. Yeah, which is a very difficult weight class too. One eighty four, one ninety seven. Those are real grown ups. Yeah, like, strong men. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's like Nick Palmasano wrestled at West Point, and uh, he's like mm-hmm. best buds with Tim Kennedy, and he's like. Uh, you know, like talking about like good to great, and he's like, yeah, he's like, I was a collegiate wrestler. And he's like, I was good. He's like, Tim Kennedy ragdolls me, just <laughs> sl- throws me all over the place, yeah. just hammers him. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, so you're in college. You had aspirations to join in the military. I did post college. I did. Um, I had an event that happened where my best friend growing up was actually um, he died from getting blown up in Afghanistan. He actually made it back, but um, so it's kind of emotional time, and I was at kind of a weird spot where. I didn't know what I wanted to do, um, so I kind of had aspirations of joining. And in Portland, they had the the Air Guard kind of AFSOC teams there with combat controllers and, and PJs, as you know. Um, and so I kind of had some aspirations to do that for a little while. Went through some testing, um, and it was kind of like, all right, well, we'll call you when spots open up. And at the same time, I'm I'm working. I think I was at Crimson Trace at the time, and uh, ended up leaving to go to loophole and career started kind of taking off and also started, um, you know, dating my now wife. So it was like, all right, I got to make some decisions on what I truly want to do. Um, and you know, I think in those units there, I don't think people leave very often. I think it's, you know, pretty long tenured people that stick around. So I could shed some light on that. Yeah, so that's the yeah. 125th STS where I'm a PJ and we'll, you know, we'll field new guys. But then based on the pipeline and the requirement and seats at the unit, some guys sit for a long time. A buddy might, waited, especially. Like, what, three years or something like that? It wasn't that long, no. It was like maybe a year that I toyed around with the idea. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, even a buddy of mine, he wanted to sign up to do, you know, be a controller. And based on COVID, which is an extreme circumstance, mm-hmm. but they have no projected start date for the next, you know, the pups to yeah. put them in the pipeline and get them going. So it, it sounds like there's no, like – shortfall in guys wanting to to go that career path like hitting their recruitment goals like because you hear a lot in today's day and age like like i think the military the u.s army is going to miss their recruiting quota by 15 percent which Mm -hmm. will be the first time in maybe ever something like that Mm -hmm. and then i know that the seals have like a 10-year backlog of guys because their marketing campaign is so amazing well the thing i'm most curious about is yes you're correct but those are those are big name like army ranger sf mm-hmm. whatever how did you find out about controllers and more specifically the 125th because nobody knows about it I, I don't and yeah i was um i was looking for like what's life after if i were to go in the military what would life after be and i like i said i was very confused on what i wanted to do for a living at this point mm-hmm. um, i went to school to be an accountant i knew i didn't want to be an accountant but that's what my degree was in um, i was technically an accounting intern at Crimson Trace for like three and a half years. I was doing all sorts of other stuff, working with the engineering team and sales team and stuff, but I had no clue what I truly wanted to be. And I just kind of stumbled into um, like what a combat controller was and like learning the difference between the JTAC and combat controller. Mm-hmm. It seemed like a really interesting job that, you know, I, for whatever reason, I thought maybe I'd want to be an air traffic controller after something like that. I don't know why I would think that, but I was like 22 and stupid, I guess. Um, Were you good at accounting? Yes. That actually makes sense to me because the the tech side of what the controllers can do and the way that they can prioritize and organize like multiple layers of aircraft, it, it's it's a talent. Yeah. And I think that those things, that analytical kind of organized thought process would be super advantageous. So what, what do you, what skills do you have None. that CCTs have? 
Oh, what do you mean? As a PJ? No, but I mean like as a PJ probably, probably versus a CCT. It's all the hard skills. We share hard skills, but in reality, they're based on they're, it's all radio. It's all comms. When there's a lot more to it, you know, surveying DZs and, you know, what kind of birds can I bring into this? When it's unsurveyed, you have to go in and they have a whole algorithm on how to make those decisions. Whereas a PJ is a, we have cool ways to get places to do medicine. So your, your, your primary focus is, would you say medical Mm -hmm. versus a CCT, which is calling in dropping bombs, dropping bombs, which pipelines harder. Okay. So this is, uh, I'm going to breeze past this really quick, but it used to be a combined in-doc. Uh-huh. So your first 10 yeah. weeks, we, you know, if he's a controller and I'm a J, we do all the same pool shit. In my opinion, the requirement for controllers to have as much water work is not as necessary because depending on if you go to an STS or if you go to a rescue as a PJ, you have to be able to jump in the ocean and grab somebody, right? And get them out. So that's you have to be tortured to so be comfortable. Whereas the controllers, that's not a thing. They might be attached to an ODA that happens to be a dive team, which is like not many of them, and they need to be versed in dive in order to do an OTB. So but they basically, would also go to like combat dive school at some point and do more schooling after. For sure, well, we would all do the same pipeline. So basically, get all the same schools, but then I get medical training at the end, and they get—I don't remember what it's called—but all their radio. Shit and DZ stuff. But both pipelines sound pretty damn hard. Oh, yeah. I mean, the attrition rates are still really high. My in-doc class, which was, uh, I think we started 80-something, graduated like 10 or 11 just from in-doc. And then you lose a couple along the pipeline. So you can't be stupid and do these jobs. You can be bullheaded, but, like, there there has to be a functioning brain that can digest information. 100%, but the pipeline has changed. And again, I don't understand completely how it works, but if we all go into, we wanna do Air Force Special Operations. Mm -hmm. You wanna be a PJ, you wanna be a controller, I wanna be a weather guy, which I don't understand weather guys. However, um, I think it's now like an aptitude test, right? So you start together to get kicked in the nuts, but then you're better at air, you have a propensity for medical, and I'm whatever. So then you get placed in those okay. respective. It, mm. There was a big change a couple of years ago. And to be honest, I'm old and I don't really track it. I just hear the young guys like talking okay. about it. And that's kind of. Yeah. All right. So you were an accountant at Crimson Trace, but yeah. you kind of mission crept into some engineering and design work. Yeah, I, do, I didn't do the design. I was like, this is actually where I kind of got into shooting pistols for the first real experience. I was like, hey, you want to go? The engineers would pull me and say, hey, you want to go help us do torture testing on some products? And so. A lot of that was like new guns that were not out to the market yet. So I thought that was like really cool and interesting and and fun. Um, and so I just kind of would go to the range with them in my in my spare time when I wasn't working on projects. And so I started learning, you know, the testing procedures they were doing, what they were trying to like push the, th- the products to, to failure and those, those type of things. Um, and then at the same time was like working with the sales and marketing team on some project stuff and... So it's just kind of well-rounded experience for, you know, at the time, this was 08, 09, 2010, Crimson Trace was like, you know, market leader in the accessory segment of our industry. So, um, you know, it was just kind of a cool experience, uh, cool company culture, stuff like that, but just kind of, you know, outgrew really my role there because it wasn't well-defined. And um, so I, I ended up leaving and going to, to Loophold after, you know, three and a half years. Basically. What year were you, did you start at Loophold? 2012. Okay. Mm-hmm. So was Bruce the CEO? No, Bruce was not there yet. Okay. 
Um, I had a great kind of mentor there and ended up being a great friend of mine, Gabe Lang. He was my boss and he, he kind of recognized um, that I was understanding the process and he's really good at teaching it. He, would, he was willing to give me more, probably more responsibility than my experience warranted. And he was kind of pushing me to like, okay, how much can you handle responsibility wise? And I ended up developing great relationships with all of our customers and, you know, learning the sales process at a young age um, instead of like, you know, a lot of people learn it as a rep where you're beating down doors and, you know, traveling miles. I was on the inside part of the business managing the sales teams with, you know, other people that were other sales managers and stuff like that. Um, but just kind of clung on to that kind of quick because it was also analytical work. And that's something that I kind of have a propensity to, to do well. Um, and like pretty, pretty quick there, I, uh, was approached for a, a pretty big step up in, in my career and it required me moving to Arkansas. And so I became, you for know, Leupold? yeah, well, no, not for loophole. Um, so I, I ended up leaving loophole after a couple of years and I ended up taking on the, uh, sales management role at Walther. Okay. And Walther's then, in Arkansas? Yeah. I didn't know that. Did you know mm. that? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So how you were at, how long were you at Leupold? Like two years. Okay, and then you went to Walter? Yeah. And you were at Walter for? Seven. Okay, what, what was your first job at Walter? It's like national sales manager. How old were you at the time? Uh, 25, I think. That's pretty young for that job, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. So tell us about your time at Walter. Real quick, you didn't happen to go to the Crimson Trace shoot and bend that they put on in like 2009, did you? I think I did, yeah. How was that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was shooting There's against like the uh, shoot stuff. Yeah, I was shooting against like Lena Mikulik when she was twelve and she was wrecking everybody. <laughs> she's awesome. Yeah, she's great. God, she's great. Her yeah, dad's was good. Yeah, that's I funny. That. So, so let's talk about your time at Walther. <clears throat> yeah, Walther um was a great experience. Again, you know, have had it, having leadership that was willing to give me a lot of responsibility. It was a much leaner team. We had a big staff at Loophold, uh and it's a big company in general. Walther's a little smaller. We didn't have a lot of staff. Uh, when I was on board there, it was me, a marketing guy, and then a vice president um, who, who ended up leaving the company after a few years and kind of opened doors for me to to step up and, and uh, grow within that company. Were you asking for advancement, or were they just did they did they identify talent in you? And you're like, hey, this guy's a, he's he's a horse. Um, so the CEO, I was very close with the CEO there, um, and the and the people in Germany. Um, and when, when the VP left the company, we just had real open, honest conversations of, okay, where do you want, where do you want to be? Where do you see yourself? He's asking me these things. And he was really open to like trying to find what, a path for me to, to do that um, to the point where he actually talked about him mentoring me to take over as CEO at some point there. Um, we didn't know, we didn't put a timeline on that, but I just over the years, I, I started to take on more product development responsibilities. I'm not a marketing guy, but you know, we hired some marketing people and I helped manage them at some point. Um, so it was kind of my first real experience in marketing management. Was the, was the goal to like become a CEO of a firearms company? I mean, like you don't seem like you, you're ambitious, but like your ambition seems like it's well-guided and well-placed. Yeah. I don't know that I ever said one day I'm going to be the CEO. Um, you know, I thought, I thought at Walther, like, hey, there's a path, you know, but I, I know that I want to develop in a lot of areas. And, mm. and I also enjoyed, like, what I was doing. I was running the product development stuff. I was in Germany almost once a month, you know, working with engineers, testing, 
coming out with all this new product that was getting like kind of recognized in the industry is you know being being kind of industry leading Mm -hmm. and um so i had i had a ton of fun with that i was hunting in germany every time i was there uh, shooting you know forty four thousand rounds in two days doing testing like oh wow sounds it, miserable uh, it, it it kind of is but it's also <laughs> yeah. like super fun because yeah. it was like it, there were long days uh but you know you're gonna go have some beer and dinner and then you're gonna go hunt until midnight and then you're gonna get up the next day and do it again at 6 a.m and like it's it's running pretty hard but it's like super fun for me yeah absolutely um, you're i mean your hands hurt after that but right it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So your time at Walther, like, what were some of the things that you worked on? Like, what were some of the improvements in the company? Because I, I have a feeling that your, if you look at your timeline and your, you know, your biological passport at these different brands, like, everything was better when you left. Yeah, I think, I, well, yeah, I think so. Um, so at Walther, we had, uh, we had some kind of innovative products. The first was they had a, a great platform that was already developed in the PPQ line. What's that? It's it's a basically a striker fired polymer frame pistol. Okay. Um, and it's a great gun, great trigger, great ergonomics, very reliable, very accurate, uh, everything you could kind of want. It didn't fit some of the trends in the industry like optic ready pistols, um, so they didn't have a good solution for that. There was a lot of uh, aftermarket accessorizing, customization type stuff. We didn't have any of that, so that was kind of the first things that we tackled and and that I worked on hard to like shore up is okay we got to have optic ready pistols we got to have accessory lines whether we're building them or other people are building them we ended up accomplishing both of those and then um, you know I kind of used companies like Zev Technologies as a as an example like hey people are taking a Glock and they're gonna go spend fifteen hundred dollars on a new slide a new barrel grip work all the a new trigger all this stuff we can provide that out of the box from the factory, tested, warranted by the factory for $800. So I developed uh, with the engineers there the Q5 Match, which was a kind of a competition-ready pistol, but it was like the first optic-ready pistol that, that Walter put out. I saw it. That was about 2015, yep. 16? Correct. Yeah, so one of the guys at work, because, again, you know, people purchase things and you check them out, and guys do racing or three-gun on the side. Mm-hmm. He opened the box. He was like, oh, I've got a Walter. I'm going to race with it. I was like, what are you talking about, man? Because it, it wasn't. You guys didn't have a product yeah. like that. He opened it up, and it had the kind of blue. Right? Yeah, it had a blue trigger in it, which was more aesthetic. We we actually did some improvements on the gun and then introduced them with that gun and then kind of trickled down to the rest of the line. Well, so it had like, like a comp and then a trigger. and Yeah, whatnot. some slide work, stuff like that. I ran it on the range. I'm like, this thing's fucking rad. Yeah. Yeah, I was impressed with it. Yeah. Yeah. It shoots really good. So we took that. um the same meeting that I pitched that concept to the board, I was pulled aside by one of the engineers and he had a little briefcase and he's like, Hey, what do you think of this? And I opened up and it was like a really modernized striker fired steel frame gun, mm-hmm. which did not exist at the time. Um, I'm like, that's really cool. I'm like the gun that I just talked about in there. Could you do that in a steel frame? And he's like, yeah. And we can sell it in Europe. They were always like, you know, they focused on the U.S. market, but they also wanted to serve their own markets over there. And so he's like, yeah, and I think we can sell that in Europe. And then he just, like, went to work. So we came out the Q5 steel frame uh, very shortly after that, which was, you know, a $1,500 striker-fired gun. Not cheap. And So what does striker-fire mean? Basically, like, like these pistols right here are striker-fired. So what that means is uh, when you pull, actuate the trigger, when you pull the trigger, 
it is tripping a sear, and inside of the slide, there's a, a rod that basically is a, acts as a firing pin. It's called a striker. Uh, but instead of like a hammer on a 1911 hitting the firing pin, it's uh, it's held back by a spring and it sits on that sear. So as you pull the trigger, it will drop the sear, it will disengage the safeties that are in the slide, uh, it will drop the sear and that striker will release forward with the same, basically same energy that a hammer would hit the firing pin. So like uh, it acts the same way, but you have a very different trigger pull. Um, instead of having a 1911 where it's just like a very short, crisp wall or a double action pull where it's really long and heavy, it's a very different trigger pull where you have a little take up and then you hit a wall and it will release that strike. I think a great example is like the Ruger P89. You remember that gun? Yeah, yeah. It was a Desperado gun. So you could, it would be racked to the rear, right? And then you'd have to decock it. So your first trigger pull in a combat situation, like the Beretta actually also, mm -hmm. super exactly. long, super heavy. And then once the slide runs, the hammer's to the rear. Now you've got a lighter trigger pull. So you've got two different things. Was it, who came up with the first striker fire? Um, it wasn't. It wasn't Glock. So there's been striker fire guns going way back. Yep. Um, I mean, Walther made some in the early 1900s, actually. I mean, but Glock um, became super prolific, and then yeah. you know a lot more people started doing it because it's a consistent trigger pull, and there's no exterior mechanism, like hammer, decocker, all these extra yeah. steps. So now it's the industry standard and, for that. And for competition, genre. it kind of makes a lot of sense because you know people want a heavier weight. The gun doesn't recoil as much. But with what you only had op options with were hammer-fired guns, and the competition rules state if it's a double-action, single-action gun, that first trigger pull has to be long and heavy. Mm -hmm. You can't shoot it off a single action out of the holster. So uh, a striker fire, it's a, re it's a consistent pull every single time. You don't have that different pull, with a few exceptions of guns that we probably won't get into, but in general, like a Glock, a Walther, these guns here, they're all gonna have that consistent trigger pull. Well, and I think the benefit, we kind of glazed over, but the steel frame is recoil. I mean, that makes a huge difference. Back in the day, we'd put tungsten guide rods and whatnot in our issued Glocks just to put more weight on the gun to keep the muzzle flip down for follow-up sight packages and tighter groups. Yeah. So to have a steel frame, people are like, well, why the fuck? Because everything's polymer. It's advantageous for that reason. So steel frame would be more accurate? or Not accurate. Not it, it, it would manage the recoil better based on the weight. Okay. And as long as you manage the recoil and then all the, all the other fundamentals, you would be able to run the gun a little okay. faster. You can shoot it faster because your return uh, to, to your target's faster. You know, the gun's going to settle back in without uh, recoil. Muzzle flip or, or, or whatever. High okay. muzzle flip, yeah. Yeah. All right. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so back to, I guess, Walther. So we did the, the series of steel frame guns. They were very successful. Um, did some concealed carry guns that, you know, at the same time, the I think the 365 was coming out and they were kind of ahead of, of what we were. These were single stack guns, uh, well regarded, but you know, once, once these micro compacts came out with the higher capacities, it kind of, you know, it put a dent in that market quite a bit. Uh, but the big thing that we worked on, um, that for me was, it was Walter launched it after I left, but it was my project that, um, I'm probably most proud of. I was working hand in hand with um, some agencies, specifically the Secret Service. Uh, and we basically wrote a spec sheet down based on a gun that they were wanting to buy in the near future. Um, and I, I believe that we nailed that, and that's the, the Walther PDP. Um, so we, we improved a lot of things from what the PPQ previously offered. Um, basically, every aspect of the gun is, is improved in some way. Um, and so 
we were we were able to write that and and start to get it into hands of law enforcement in the U.S., which was something Walter always struggled to do, uh, getting people off of a of a Glock and trying to convince a whole agency to switch. It's very difficult. Um, ironically, when we were getting ready to launch it, uh, or when Walter was, Secret Service actually had a lot of turnover at the director level. And so the, they had a new director that came in and he basically said, I'm not dealing with the pistol solicitation, buy it off the homeland contract, and they bought Glocks. So it wasn't what they wanted, but they ended up going with the Glocks. And, you know, the, Walter came out with a great gun that, you know, has been recognized pretty well. Like, are there agencies that carry anything other than Glock or like yeah. services? Yes. Yeah. Or yeah. what are some of the guns that different services and agencies carry? The SIG 320 is probably yeah. the secondary. Uh, Glock still is the market leader, but the SIG 320, um, we got a couple of big agencies on with, with Walther when I was there. Um, big one down in Florida that's pretty prominent. Um, and then, you know, Smith probably still has some, some contracts for the MMP out there. Okay. Yeah, I think. I mean, and I, I always, you know, think about the military. I went from Beretta to Glock, basically. But like, SEAL teams always had. I think it was a two two six. The SIG. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that's evolved to like the three twenty. And yeah. then, actually, the Air Force folks. I was driving through to the base the other day. They've got some Coyote SIG thing that yeah. they're rocking now. Yeah. Okay. Which is weird because it's. I I'm not a huge Glock fan by any means, but it's almost like everybody just did what the guy before them did. Mm-hmm. We're like, oh, we got to have Glocks. I'm like, it's not the greatest gun, to me. I'm not it a huge fan. They don't fit my hand well. I don't well, like. It's, it's the palm swell and the angle. The angles. Every time you point, it, if you know what you're doing, you're going to have to heal up onto sights a lot of times. And yeah. a lot of companies fixed it. You know, they made a different angle, which was a more easy, easier pointing, natural pointing gun, more like the 1911, which is you know fairly straight up backstrap but i don't know that's yeah. always the thing people are like well i'm buying my first gun i'm gonna get a glock i go why i wouldn't i wouldn't buy one and i slung guns professionally for over 20 years i would not walk what did in you carry as a set on i carried a glock only because i had to okay but when i went home i bought i think my first non-glock that i purchased was an m&p Mm-hmm. because that palm swell was adjustable it was pretty ergonomic yep. my personal glocks i had the palm swells built out to change the angle so that it would work and then i kept the stock one only so i could train for work you know when i go to the range i'm shooting the same shit that i'm going to be shooting right uh, over overseas but then we went to uh, the 43 19 17 we 18 we had all the, all yeah. the shits do you have any glocks yeah I have you don't like them uh I don't shoot them well, I'll tell you that. Really? Um, but I've, I've had so much trigger time behind the PPQ and PDP platform, and then now these. I, I don't – I stick to what I shoot most. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, if I picked up a Glock, I'm not going to run it very well. Really? Well, that's amazing, too, because Glock has never addressed, at least to my knowledge, and I haven't put my hands on the new stuff, but their, tr- their trigger is triangular. So if you don't seat it correctly, you're either pushing or you're pulling on it, whereas, like, I drive fire this thing, and it's – flat in the front mm-hmm. which takes yeah, away straight pull back. yeah You're it's gonna... it's great flat in the front is the way it should be which means i switched all the triggers on my guns if they weren't so they built into the actual mechanics of the gun something that can affect you know your trigger squeeze and they've never fixed it it's still the yeah. same shit so when you were at walter did you guys have any like screw-ups yeah for what, sure can you talk about any of this yeah um we had a so walter is generally a let's say a premium line of, of guns they have some cheaper options you know and like rimfire stuff 
um, certainly not duty grade pistols, uh, but then they have like, you know, really high end, some of the best duty pistols out there. And then they have everything up into these like, you know, small bore Olympic rifles that are $5,000, $6,000. And they're like the world leader in that. So like they have this like wide range of product that, you know, but most of it's pretty premium stuff. Um, but we, we, for whatever reason, we continue to chase this like price point volume gun and it we had two models that were essentially the same gun one was like reskinned a little bit better uh, and both of those flopped they were not good uh, we ended up fire selling them for you know losing money on them whatever uh, and, and you know but we we kept trying to do that and we probably should have just taken a step back after the first failure and said that's not who we are so it's probably like the biggest learning experience out of that is like know what your brand really is and then play to that and then um we had some we had some concealed carry guns that just were difficult to get to work right they had some innovative um, features in them that kind of delayed the recoil inside them it was like a piston system inside um and when they ran they were great the ones that i owned had no malfunctions with um but in general they were difficult to get that consistent production out of and so some of those were probably like they didn't help Walther grow like we wanted it to. Um, and, you know, sometimes when you have, you know, foreign ownership or just some higher up people that want something, you're going to do what they say. Black Friday is here and Black Rifle Coffee Company is kicking off its biggest sale of the year to help you get your holiday shopping done right. Shop 30% off site-wide, including 30% off your first month when you join Black Rifle Coffee Club. Joining the coffee club is a super convenient and customizable way to get your coffee delivered right to your door on whatever schedule works for you. Plus, you can change it whenever you like, free of charge. These Black Friday deals are absolutely insane, with discounts up to 70% off on some products. Head to blackriflecoffee.com and take advantage of these incredible deals on all our best merch, gear, and coffee roasts. Yeah, fair enough. I know what that's like. <laughs> um, so how, you were at Walther, what, seven years? Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about leaving Walther and going to Taurus, where you're presently the CEO. Yeah. Uh, how did, like, dude, you're 32 years old. Like, I think the process started when you were 31. Um, the interview and I the I think con- I just turned 32. It was like a maybe a seven-month process, interview process, um, from the first time I was contacted by a recruiter. And then, you know, several interviews and... So you get get an email from a recruiter. Yeah, which, I mean, that happens a lot. Yeah. Um, This one, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to reply to this. And kind of talked to my wife about it. And she's like, well, what's what's the deal with this? I'm like, well, I don't even know what the company is. She's like, well, what what does it hurt to, like, find out? I'm like, well, yeah, I guess you're right. So I just replied to him and said, hey, I'd love to talk, whatever. Um, so I set up a time to talk to him. He still didn't tell me what the company was at that point, but I kind of had some suspicions. There was probably three different options on who it could be. Um, I won't say who the other two were cause I don't know, you know, what happened with those leaders that were in those seats at that time. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, it was kind of like a confidential thing because there was, you know, already CEO there, um, that had been with the company for a long time. Um, Taurus had not a revolving door, but like a short term track record of CEOs leaving after about two years, whether it's on their own or not. So, you know, it was kind of like a concerning thing. Um, and I didn't really know 
you know, what I was really getting myself into. I, I had an idea, um, but when I got into the interview process and started meeting the leadership team in Brazil, because I didn't, I didn't meet with anybody so, in the U.S. Explain that in Brazil. What Taurus is? Yeah. So our parent company is Taurus Armas. It's the same company, um, although it's a it's a we're like a subsidiary of theirs, right? They own us 100 percent um, outright, and they are a publicly traded company down in Brazil. Um, so big company, um, you know, 3,000 employees. I don't even know how many square feet of manufacturing space, but um, pretty much every component of the gun we're making in-house or, or you know, relatively close to all of it in-house. Um, so that's really our kind of our benefit as a company. We, we control our manufacturing processes. We control the costs don't rely on outside suppliers and you know building stuff in in brazil is generally a little bit cheaper than doing it in the u.s so um so yeah there's a leadership team down there um i learned that it had just kind of changed over to a new team uh in late 2018 i believe and they had this new vision of kind of turning the company around and you know taurus at the time and you know even a little bit today kind of damaged reputation some some of it for good reason you know um so it was a it was like a hey how do we turn this brand around like what what can we do and what they saw in me i guess was kind of the innovative thought and product development and you know things that they thought were because because i don't think you're going to get that turnaround from a different marketing campaign you know what i mean you, you have to do things yeah. fundamentally different from the manufacturing level and you know everyone from the assembly line workers in brazil the leadership down there and everyone in our company here have to be completely bought into that vision so yeah it's like you can have the greatest marketing campaign in the world and if you send people into a room to look at the product you're marketing and it's a piece of junk right you're wasting your time versus mm -hmm. having putting all of your time and energy into creating the best product Correct. And then you get people in the room, and then those people see this product, they're like, oh, this is amazing. And then from there, they'll go out and tell the world, which mm -hmm. is the greatest marketing in the world is referrals. Right. People talking about you yep. in a good word way, you know. Right. So you get a call, you have a, you have a phone interview? Yep. I have a phone interview with the recruiter, and then I fly down to Miami and do in-person interviews with the uh, CEO and CFO down in Brazil. But in, they came up to Miami to meet. How was that? Um, it was interesting. So the global CEO who, who I still report to today does not speak English. So he was, you know, asking me questions. There was translation. It was, it was pretty wild. And like, <laughs> and I have experience working fun. with foreign ownership. Yeah, like Walter in, with Germany. Yeah. yeah. But you know, the, the Germans that I worked with every day spoke great English. There was never any real communication issues. So this is a different experience, you know, and Portuguese is a different language it's, altogether. It's an entertaining language to listen it to. Is. Portuguese. Yeah. So, you know, um, that was a, it was an interesting experience. Generally liked, liked the people. Um, they were kind of laid back, you know, kind of seemed like fun-loving people, which when you're in the interview for that, I thought, you know, this is going to be very serious stuff. And it was like, you know, they were asking hard questions and stuff like that. And, um, you know, flat out asked me like, why do you think you can do this at your age? I'm like, oh, so they were, I mean, that was a concern of theirs. Like it was not a concern, but it was a topic. Yeah. Like I, I think I don't remember if it was the first interview or the second, but they're like, how old are you? 
and like in the U.S., you can't have, you know. But I'm like, whatever. Like they don't, they don't know, and they're like, we know that you're not supposed to ask that, but, you know, how do you think you can do this at your age? Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I don't know. Like the age has anything to do with it because, I mean, how long have you been trying to turn the company around and do this? And how old were the people that tried to do that? Exactly. Sometimes I think the age is the benefit well, because it, you're more innovative in your thinking as opposed to like, let's, let's. Well, historically, my opinion, the firearms industry is like turning a cargo container ship around in the middle of the ocean. It takes 18 miles because mm-hmm. they're, they, you know, those guys have been in that role for, you know, decades and they're used to doing things a certain way. They don't, t- they don't evolve. Right. And like, you know, I know. Ten years ago, you know, you talk to these firearms companies about their social media and stuff. They're like, "Oh, well, Bobby's stepdaughter. She's always on her phone. She does mm-hmm. our Facebook." And it's like, that—that's the level of attention that you think this warrants. Um, but it's funny, like if you look at like certain NFL teams, like Tomlin at the at the Steelers, he took that job over at thirty-four. And then you look at what's his name? Uh, he went to Marist School in Atlanta. Uh, the coach of the uh, Rams. Rams. Yeah, 30, 30 years old. You know, and those guys have both won Super Bowls. Yeah. You know. Um, so it, that's interesting. So the age thing did come up several times. Yeah. Um, yeah. With, with basically everybody that I interviewed with, they asked about it. Um, which, you know, didn't bother me is what it is. Um, you know, I, I knew also when I was interviewing for this, I'm like, I don't have anything to lose. Let's, let's see where this goes. Yeah. Cause I honestly wanted to know what they were looking for too. We'll go through the exercise. It doesn't yeah. ever hurt. Mm-hmm. I can learn from this, you know, and won't hurt anything if I don't get it. Um, but you know, I tried my, try my best to get it and you know so go through those interviews um the first two were down in florida um in-person interview type well, things from the time that you had that first phone call till the the second interview in miami how long was that probably a month a month okay. yeah probably a month and then the second interview in uh was in orlando was probably another month and a half after that one something, and then from like there that. you go down to an interview in brazil yeah i went down uh to another interview in brazil they had the company's 80th year anniversary party going on. Um, so the, the, at the time, the current CEO from the U.S. was there entertaining writers and customers and all the people that I worked with on a daily basis. So they kind of had me behind the scenes shuffling around, and I didn't know any of this at the time, but it was just kind of a, a weird thing, like, all right, we're going to take you to this room, and then I'd just be sitting there for, like, 30 <laughs> minutes by myself. I'm like, what is this, you know? But I was in Brazil for, like, 12 hours total. Like it was a fast trip. Oh, in and out. Yeah, I got I got to the factory about noon, and I flew out the very next morning. So it was like like in and out fast. Um, but you know, after they kind of wound like their festivities kind of winded up or was was done for the day, they uh, you know they actually had time to sit down and actually do an interview with me. So hmm. yeah, what like what is the level of like sophistication of the, those people? Like serious businessmen, yeah. like you know what I mean, like very, very sophisticated, sh- squared away, put together, very dudes. sharp, sophisticated businessmen, um, very heavy resource laden company. So like we have investor relations uh, departments. We have, I mean, there's over three thousand employees down there. So it's a, it's a full, full staff. It's a thing. Yes, it's a thing. Very much so. Um, and then you know the folks that are running the ship are you know industry veterans um our cfo is a extremely sharp finance guy he's worked for some of the biggest companies in the world um uh, as a cfo or controller level so he's got a lot of experience um so the, the global ceo is a finance dude yeah 
Okay. It's, it's interesting because, like, when I talk to CEOs and whatnot, and I always – everyone I meet, I compare to Evan. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at companies that are, you know, 50, 100, 200, 300, 400 million dollars, it's always finance guys or engineer uh, operations type dudes. And, you know, for being Evan's such a close friend of mine, it's like Evan's a marketing guy, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, he likes to say he's a data guy, but like Evan is a marketing guy, you know. And um, the only other marketing guy that comes to mind is Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs would, if he were alive, he would tell you that he could write code and all this stuff. But like Steve Jobs was a marketing dude. Yeah. And it's interesting um, exercise for me to meet these people. And it's like, I've never met a CEO like Evan. He's just, it's a totally different animal. So when I, like, and Evan's always joking around. I mean, you've met him today mm-hmm. and we were chatting and stuff. And like, he's kind of a joker. But it's interesting, like, the level of sophistication and like what's required. Because like when you're growing up, and you think of CEOs, you think of these super serious, like staunch, like just stoic faced guys that are just strictly business and they don't smile, tell jokes and yeah. you know, have they ever been happy, like hmm. versus Evan, who's constantly making everyone laugh. So that's why I asked the question, like, yeah, so um, our CEO, the CFO is a finance guy. Um, our CEO is a sales and marketing guy. Oh, OK, so he's got a little different outlook on things. Um, and I will say, like, the Brazilians for, you know, is, whatever you want to call them, sophisticated, uh, good business people. They generally are very good business people. Um, they also like to bust each other's balls, like, really? <laughs> nonstop. Um, and, and then it kind of bleeds over to, to our team once we kind of, like, mm-hmm. start developing relationships with them and stuff like that. So they, they are generally more laid back than, like, working with the Germans mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. But, you know, they're... They take their business very seriously, too. They have you the know ability what? to cut up. Like, culturally, yeah. they're, they're super entertaining. Well, you know what I think of when I think of Brazil? Like, so, like, if you were to go grab 11 random people from this office, and, like, yeah, we're going to go play, you know, some football outside. Like, everyone kind of has an idea of how the game's played because it's, like, you know, a major sport. Mm-hmm. Versus Brazil, when I think of Brazilians, it's, like, every one of them knows how to fight, and they're all black belts in BJJ. <laughs> like, every yeah. single Brazilian in the world is a, is a black belt. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I think there are, like, you know, there's several people down there that, you know, they're, you can tell, like, if they're more fit or whatever, and generally they're pretty fit people in general. But, um, yeah, a lot of them roll around mm. in their off time. So there's consequences to I've, making mistakes. I haven't, I haven't asked if I can join when I'm down there yeah. yet. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't taken that. Step. Well, you got the wrestling background. Yeah. You probably sling around a little bit. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. No, you can always tell. When you're doing some jiu-jitsu and you grab onto somebody that wrestles, it's like – you could feel that explosive kind of power and strength yeah. and stuff. You're like, ooh, you gotta be careful with that. Some leverage and yeah. Stuff. yeah, yeah, yeah. Balance uh, points and control them. So, um, where where in Brazil is the is the headquarters? Uh, southern Brazil. So Porto Alegre is the the town um, or the nearest airport, I guess. Um, we have two factories down there. One is you know primarily the pistol stuff, and then one is like more of a long gun factory. So we make like Rossi lever actions and stuff like that. Okay. Hmm. So. All right, so you go to your, your meeting down there. What's, what happens next? You come back, you're there 12 hours. Yeah, come back, and I don't really hear much for, you know, like a week and a half, maybe something like that. And, um, you know, but I'm thinking, all right, they flew me down. You know, I, I saw the receipt for the ticket. It was not cheap. It was business class. Like, they're taking this serious. Like, yeah. I have a shot at this. So well, hold on. when did you think you had a shot at what after point? the second interview? Okay. And, and they said, all right, they told me like, as we were wrapping up the second interview, you, you need to come down to Brazil. Uh, I want to introduce you to some of the shareholders, stuff like that. 
Um, so it was it was basically then I thought, okay, they're serious. And then, were uh, you aware of any competition at this point? Other people interviewing for the same job? I still don't know who they interviewed. But there was there was somebody. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I I know that they interviewed people. I know some of the companies they interviewed people from. Mm-hmm. Um, th- the people that I suspected they told me wasn't, but they weren't going to tell me who it, who it was. Yeah, so fair enough. Right. At this point, it doesn't really matter. Right. So, um, so yeah, I came back after the trip to Brazil, uh, which was you know the the probably the biggest eye opening part was seeing the factory and what it truly is. Mm-hmm. Like I've seen Walther, very impressive machine shop, but a small factory. This is a sprawling operation that you know i think i kind of joke but i don't know if it's really a joke like it looks like it was an old prison where it's this huge campus with like 12 foot concrete walls and razor wire and then all these buildings but it's like state-of-the-art equipment inside of them um but i think they even have like a soccer field in there like it's huge and then you know recently they just bought this property next to them so it's getting even bigger um but watching what they were doing from a product standpoint already at that point like they had made the decision hey we are fixing this um they just needed someone to help in the u.s side and and help guide the product stuff Uh, but i saw that it was very clear that they were already on their on their path Um, the investment in quality control those procedures were were all there already was there a detachment from the previous leadership or just the entity and like the shooting sports at you know from the states three gun comp guns was there a disconnect there and that's why they weren't as innovative before you showed up i think there's a little bit of that mm-hmm. um you know i think having a kind of a structured r&d process was was lacking and i think that's where um even when taurus would come out with something that was let's say innovative um not talking about like the curve, something that like people would actually buy and like they got a lot of orders for, they would stumble and they could never deliver. Hmm. So like even when they had did something good, they messed it up. And so there was just like, you know, there were there were times where they had the opportunity and couldn't pull it off. Hmm. But I do think like, and I'll, I'll talk about like culture and stuff like that in the, here in a minute. Um, I do think that that's a key part of what we're doing is having people that are invested in this stuff outside of work is is important. I guess that was my next question because I don't know. What is the shooting sport industry in Brazil look like versus us? So sport pistol shooting is is becoming a thing like Ipsic style. Okay. Uh, that's becoming more and more popular. They've never had the access to the gear, holsters, that kind of stuff. Uh, even pistol-wise, like I don't think you could buy a 9mm pistol before 2018 elections. Mm, okay. So I think you had to have a 380, and no one's competing in no. 380, you know. So, um, like, all that's relatively new, but it's growing extremely fast. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think you know, they, they kind of follow our lead on that, but, like, they're, they're developing it, too. Outstanding, yeah. Um, so you come back from Brazil. Come back, a week come and a half from goes Brazil. by. Yeah, I don't really hear much. Um, and then I get a phone call, hey – want to do one more interview they're doing a grand opening at the new factory in in uh bainbridge georgia um the whole board will be there and this will be kind of the last step uh they didn't say like they're going to interview you and and the other people they didn't they left it very open and just said you know this will probably be the last interview and then they'll make a decision and so you know i'm thinking all right that's fine i'll you know yet again take some vacation and and go do this and, um, you know, the whole time, like I had to keep 
that a secret from Walter, like, which I hate. Yeah. Um, but like, you can't, I, I couldn't even let people know that I was interviewing that Taurus was hiring a CEO. Mm-hmm. So there was a guy, there was a guy that worked there. Like it was very, very confidential. Was he stepping down or was uh, he, Yeah, he kind of semi-retired. Okay. Yeah. So he knew you were coming no. or someone was coming. He, at some point, yes, he okay. did. Uh, but like the company didn't know. Mm. And I knew people that worked at Taurus, like that's kind of where I'm going with this next, next bit. But like I knew people that worked there. Mm-hmm. Um, none of them knew that I was doing any of this. Interesting. So I go to Bainbridge to uh, fly to Tallahassee. I stay the night in Tallahassee. I drive up at like six in the morning. And they, they set up at this like brand new Hampton Inn that was built basically to support Taurus in Bainbridge. Um, and they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll bring you in through the lobby and do a, an interview. Um, just be very discreet when you come in because there's people staying here that are for the grand opening, which means our customers, like everybody that I know is staying at this hotel. Hmm. And so I'm, I pull up, I get in, uh, get in my parking spot or whatever, turn the car off and I go to get out. And one of our employees who's still with us, a director of sales, Sherry fix is at the car next to me, getting something out of the back of her car. So I'm just like sitting there waiting for her, like (laughs) trying to not make eye contact. Awkward. And, um, yeah, so it's just kind of how the thing went and they kind of like ushered me in the side door, did like an hour interview with the board. Um, kind of final thing and then that night i got a call that they were going to offer me the job nice and then even then by the time i got an actual contract signed was another month and a half something like that when did you know that you wanted the job um like for sure after like i want this after the november trip to brazil okay um like i was motivated to keep going after the first couple of interviews meeting the team um because i didn't know what what i was getting into before i met them like if this is just going to be a thing where I'm like the whipping boy, I'm not interested, right. you know, but when I got, I got to kind of meet these people and learn their personalities and stuff. I'm like, all right, that I, I can work with them. They're fun. Um, like they truly seem like they want the U S business to lead this thing. And, and they still, to this day, like they tell people even in their, you know, stock stock uh, shareholder meetings, we're a U.S. company with a Brazilian factory. Okay. Um, even though they're traded down there, they, they are solely focused on the U S market. So you get the job offer a month and a half later. Yep. Any back and forth on that or did you take it, accept it? There was a little bit of back and forth. I wasn't, uh, I was pretty excited to get it. Okay. Like, yeah. Um, so when you know, did you I was, tell Walter? Yeah. <laughs> so word got out and I don't know how, um, but word got out to one of Walter's sales reps that someone from Walther was going to take over at Taurus. And that sales rep called somebody at Walther's sister company, Umarex, and said, hey, have you heard anything about this job at Taurus? Do you know who that could be? And he goes, the only person I can think of is Brett. And so, like, I remember this. I was flying back to Portland with my family on Christmas Eve. I got a text from the CEO of Walther said, hey, I know. Let's talk next week. Uh, whatever, but you need to call the you need to call the Germans tonight. Fuck. So like call the Germans. And <laughs> that's that's an ominous construction. And, well, and I was very close. I was I still am very close with those guys in Germany. But like he's like you you owe it to call them and tell them yourself. Um, no congrats or any of that stuff. No, he was like, look, we'll talk we'll talk later. Um, and he's super good about it. Like you know, no hard feelings at all. 
but um you know trying to enjoy christmas eve with my family and yeah. you know and that comes across and then welcome uh, to ceo ship yeah i mean it, but the the one problem was i hadn't signed any contracts at this point okay so it, it was not final that's nerve-wracking yeah yeah so i i not that i burned a bridge but i was i was out the door for sure um, but you know, we worked it out really well. Um, you know, I, I actually stayed on it at Walther as long as they wanted me to. How long was that? Um, probably a month and a half after I started at Taurus, uh, and the Brazilians agreed that, Hey, you can help them through a transition. We just need you to, you know, so I was working both booths at SHOT Show. Luckily they were right next to each other. That's fine. Um, that is great. That's yeah, entertaining. Yeah. yeah. So, I'm yeah. entertained right now. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was kind of fun to pull off. And at some point they just, you know, they're like, all right, we're good. You know? We don't get need out. Transition well, they're, they're probably happy that you had a, a decent I, handover. I was glad that they let me also because, you know, historically, I think with that company, if someone was going to a competitor, it's like, all right, hey, we get it. No hard feelings, but you cannot come in our building anymore. Hmm. Like, but for whatever reason, they were a little more gracious. With probably me. a testament to your character. Hmm? Maybe. I, I'm. I'm still close with the CEO there, yeah. too. So well, you like, speak very highly of the company. Yeah. Even when we first met at Branded Rock Canyon, like, you speak very highly of Walter. Yeah, Walter. no, I, you know, I'm super proud of the stuff we did, yeah. and, and the people that are there today are, are still doing great things, you know. Um, I think what they did with launching the PDP and getting it to market, like, I started that project. I wrote however many 35 spec sheets for it. Um but they had to finish up the development and then get it to market, yeah. which is, is kind of the final stretch and not easy to do. So they, they've done a great job, um, and I'm, I'm happy to see them succeed. They're also not like a direct competitor right. of ours. They're at a different price point. So so first day on the job at Taurus. Oh, man. Uh, drinking from a fire hose, it was at SHOT Show. Um, so I got introduced to the team the morning of the first day at SHOT Show. Um, like, all right, this is yours now. Out of the um, turnip truck into the rose garden. Yeah. Like, here we go. The funniest thing about that week, like, it was it was a wild week. It was busy. Um, this is 2018? No, this is 2020. Okay. January 2020, right before COVID. All right. Um, so, yeah, I, I stepped in. Um, the, we, had, we had a one-week overlap with the prior CEO. He was, he was also there. The Brazilians were there. And, you know, spent a week with them. I knew all the customers we were meeting with. I knew, you know. There wasn't a whole lot of new stuff that week. It was it was not in the factory working with you know the behind the scenes stuff. So wasn't all that new. Um, but I remember I went to dinner the last night with the Brazilians and then kind of had a drink with them. And then you know before they went up the elevator to their hotel room, they're like, "Well, good luck." And then COVID hit, and I didn't see them in person for two more years, basically. Oh wow! Like basically this time last year was the first time I saw them in person. Uh, since January of 2020. So they were when they Damn were saying okay. good COVID. luck. Yeah, right. when they were saying good luck, it was like, hey, it's yours to yeah. don't mess it up. You know, basically. That's a lot all at once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was interesting. So how, like, so like, what was like the first 90 days as a CEO? Like, did you have a clue what you were doing? Um, I mean, I had kind of a game plan. I think it kind of went out the window in March of that year. Um, Why? Well, so a couple things. So. I think what I expected to do was not what needed to get done right away. Mm -hmm. Like we had, we had a pretty good team. They were very lean. Um, we, we didn't have enough people. Um, but the people that we had were actually pretty good. So I didn't feel like I needed to go in and clean house and, you know, and do all that, which 
I think, you know, maybe early expectation was a little bit of that, but yeah, it, it wasn't necessary. So didn't do that. Um, but like in mid February, I started noticing our back order growing and growing and growing. And this was like COVID was around, but we weren't shut down. Like the, the country was still normal. Um, and so it was like a signal that something was happening. Um, and it was also like, you know, becoming an election year. So there was some political stuff with Trump. And I noticed that we were still like discounting stuff like it was 2018, like when the market was really tough, you know, and that's generally what happens in the, in the gun world is you do like a, you go to a distributor show and you're selling guns, buy five, get one free to your dealers. Uh, we were running stuff like that with 30,000 units on back order. So I sat down with the team, like, why are we doing this? I'm like, well, we had to have, I'm like, no, we don't, we don't have to have a show special. If, if we have a back order, we actually shouldn't do a show special because you're promising a discount and you're probably not going to deliver it. Um, so kind of like noticing the culture and the mindset of, of the people was the first thing that we really had to change. Um, noticing an opportunity to not like lose money or not be the lowest of the low price in the market was was like an opportunity for us to flip that switch and start moving things in the right direction. And so getting people bought into that, um, I hadn't had enough time to really affect the product stuff yet, but let's stabilize the sales process, stabilize you know what we're doing here. And then when COVID hit, it was just game over there. Like you could not make enough guns ever. We were making 10,000 guns a day. And, and then the riots kicked off, which found another gear there. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and that basically lasted through last year. Like our back order, I mean, we still have back orders today, um, but like like polymer frames and model pistols are pretty caught up with everybody. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, it was wildfire. What are you most pr- what what what's the most impactful thing you've accomplished so far at Taurus? Because I don't know if we're allowed to talk about the the back order stuff. Like you like see, on the warranty side? Yeah, like yeah, I'll it, talk about. Okay, that. yeah. So that that like I remember we were talking about that. Out in no, Colorado. I mean I put out I put out a a letter to the market recognizing that early on. So um, kind of after I got my feet wet and established and started like working with the team and understanding who we had, uh, I, w- I kind of had some time to start looking at things internally. Every time I come in my office, like I was down there every week, Monday morning I'd come in my office and there'd be a stack of letters from customers who were not happy. Like written, handwritten letters. Handwritten letters, sometimes in cursive. Like that tells you someone's I, pissed yeah. off when they write it in cursive. For everyone <laughs> listening, <laughs> I'm from Georgia, and their factory is in your offices in Bainbridge, Georgia. Yeah. I write in cursive. <laughs> Still. Might have been Still. Might have Abs- been you. Probably was. So, yeah. So, like, I'm like, okay, clearly there's something here that I need to look at. Um, you know, and, and a lot of it was like, let's say, 40% of it was like unfounded or just people being, you know, difficult customers to deal with. But there was 60% of it that was very real. And we had to like look at how to, what was going on. Um, and so part of it was like our processes kind of broke down at some point in warranty repair. And that affects the customer service department directly. So if you have uh, a high number of people waiting on guns to get repaired to get back. That means you have a high number of people that are probably calling in several times a day trying to get a hold of an agent. So our, our phone lines were overwhelmed. You could not get through. Especially if they're writing cursive. You know they're yes. picking up the telephone. Mm-hmm. Yes. They've got time. Yes. Oh, yeah. Emails, yeah. tweets, yep. Yep. everything. So 
so once I started di digging into it, I learned when we moved the factory from Miami to Bainbridge, this is not an excuse, it's just reality of, of what happened. We already had this problem, but we made it 10 times worse because we moved all of the guns into the building and they were not put in order that we received them. So if somebody called in and said, I want to know where my gun is, we'd say, look, we know your gun's here. I don't know which pallet it's on, though. So I can't tell you when we're going to work on it because I don't know when we're going to get to it. We can't go find your gun out of this stack. And it was 22,000 or 20, yeah, 22,000 guns, roughly. Wow. That we had to work through. So massive problem. Um, so at the same time, you know, our phone lines and our customer service, which those people's jobs is already hard enough. They don't deal with happy customers very yeah. often. Um, you couldn't get a hold of them. You, our phone lines, when you called in, you'd be on hold for 50 minutes, and then it would hang up on you. Mm. Which mm -hmm. if you're already mad. Mm -hmm. Oh, especially if you're writing cursive. Yeah. Yeah. So that, That's a through line here. So, yeah, had to address those two things. That was, like, the biggest thing, you know. And if, if we're real about wanting to change our brand's perception, which we were, and, we, and I still am today, that is the number one thing that has to be fixed. Because at this point, we're, we're actually making pretty good guns. Um, that, that change had already happened. But these are all, like, really old service orders that needed to be closed what out. What was the fixed. oldest one? The oldest one was 2009. Holy shit. That's a decade where I come from. Yeah. Um, there was a couple instances where once we got to the person we had called and the owner of that gun was no longer alive, oh. that was a, a bad one. Um, and I think that happened twice. And then, you know, just generally people either change their numbers, can't get a hold of them. It was a mess to, to do. How long did it take to fix? Uh, about 14 months to like truly be caught up and fixed and, and be comfortable that it's, you know, it's good. We've so, had, so like average turnaround time at that point, which is like from the day we received the gun till we ship it back to the person was about 22 weeks. But we know that there were some that were way more than that. Uh, some of it was waiting on parts. Well, we never ordered the parts. There was not a system that said, Hey, you need, th you need this part for warranty repair. So there was a lot of things that had to be established and, and put into place to actually like fix that long term. Uh, because we could have done the easy thing, just go through each gun and say, hey, we're, we can't fix your gun. We're going to send you a replacement. We could have done that. But you know what's interesting about that? So when I was, in, I was in real estate from 2001 to 2010, and I remember when I started having some success and making money and stuff, and I remember I bought my first expensive pair of binos from Leupold. And that was in 2004. And uh, I remember when I lived in Washington, one of the reticles stripped. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm going to just call him and see how I can fix this because you know, I like the binos. And I called him like, yeah, send them in. I said, all right, no problem. Sent the binos in. Two days later, had a brand new pair of binos on my front mm -hmm. step. And you know what? I will not use anything other than Leupold binos now because of that. That's customer That's service. That, yeah. I, I, I'm serious. I wouldn't use another pair of binos if you gave me everything just because of that one instance. Yeah. And it, so everywhere that I had worked up until this point also had outstanding customer service. Mm -hmm. Leupold, 100% best in the industry at what they do. Crimson Trace also had a great uh, warranty repair and customer service team. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, I watched the cultures at those companies, and I knew that we did not have that here at Taurus. Um, and so, you know, a lot of what I saw from people that were responsible for that 
it wasn't that they didn't want to do a good job, but they just never like felt empowered to, to take care of the customers. Mm-hmm. Um, They're like, scared of money. Like Tim Ferriss has a saying, like, if you can solve a problem for less than a hundred or two hundred dollars, you don't have to ask permission to solve the problem. Well, and like I'm, a, I'm of the opinion your warranty repair or customer service should not be a profit center. Yeah. Um, if you're enough. if you're worried about making money, you're probably not. You know, and you can sell like you know we would sell parts and stuff to people that wanted to buy parts. They didn't necessarily have a broken gun; they needed a new grip or something. We'd sell parts to people, but your main thing is when somebody calls in take care of them as fast as they as you can make sure that they're happy and that they're going to buy our product again like evan's a psychopath about customer service we have more customer service agents at this company than any other position yeah it's 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 truly remarkable like it is amazing that's his that i think customer service and coffee club those are his two babies so amongst covid right where your your volume there's more requests for guns people are buying guns Mm -hmm. like fucking crazy and writing the ship in the customer service area. When did you find time to innovate and do, accomplish this? So Hold that up so the camera can see it. Yeah. So you know, you said Disclaimer, you said Evans a hard wall. Yeah. Nobody's over there. Not there's, no pro- it there's no anybody. producer over there. Guns clear. Just a rad little pistol. Yeah. So like you said earlier, Evans a, a marketing guy. Yeah. Um, I'm not necessarily a sales or war marketing guy, even though I've been in those roles in my past. I'm not an engineer either. You're an engineer. I'm a product guy. Engineer. Um, I've learned how to speak to engineers Mm -hmm. uh, and be able to relate certain concepts to them. But, like, at the same time, I actually don't do any real work, if that makes sense. Like, I micromanage this side more than probably anything. Mm -hmm. But, like, our team is expected to own their department and their role and and run it and I'm always available to step in and help do whatever they need support them but like this is probably what I micromanage the most really um after after we kind of got out of the hole with warranty repair and I didn't have to watch that as close I still get a daily dashboard sent to me that I watch but like I wasn't like back in the factory every day like or I'm not today like I was um this side of it is something that I micromanage because this is something I am so passionate about and it's also the lifeblood of our company to really change for not just today. Like, I think we've done a good job, but five, ten years ago, out, what do we what do we look like as a company? Um, like, we have to drive this ship the right way. Yeah. And I think our brand, more than anybody, we don't have room for error in, in this. We can't have a, an overlooked feature or, you know, we can't afford to not do it right the very first time. You need a 100% solution right out of the gate because there's there's – competition in this there's, there's a lot there's of stiff competition yeah. they, their brands are all generally more respected than ours i've put my hands on all of them yeah. and this one's got awesome features right out of the gate what about this tan thing so space, this is a space gun yeah so that's the g3 that. tactical model hold um, it up like that so i can see it that is a cool pistol yeah so this this particular one these are all my personal <laughs> guns uh, i carry this like, gx4 see, it looks like i'm pointing it at your face but i'm not you're not I swear, like i'm not give him a Palm up. Me? Palm up. What yeah, so they can see it. Yeah, that thing's rad. You're such a civilian. Fuck off. Absolutely a civilian. <laughs> so this pr- this particular gun has uh, grip work done by Boresight Solutions down in Florida. Mm. Uh, he does great work. On this type of gun, I like it more aggressive than what our factory stippling is. On the carry gun, which this is what I carry. If I'm not carrying a revolver, I carry this gun every day. Mm. I want it a little bit, like this is still very effective stippling, but I want it a little bit 
you know, I can't hurt my delicate skin as much as I can. with. Yeah, but she also thought ahead and put the thumb, you know, kind of indexing pads. Yeah, Yeah, and then, you know, for, for, you know, your your strong hand, you you can rest your trigger finger up there. Yeah, little touch point. Yep. Um, So, yeah, so G3 Tactical is kind of our most feature-rich full-size gun. Um, We don't have any GX4s in that size category right now. It's like I'll say the GX4 is our future platform for sure. But the G3 right now is is like what we probably sell the most of G3 in the compact version. And this is like the has everything version of it. Right. Yeah. So uh, threaded barrel from the factory, DLC coating on the barrel, uh, which is not something we had done before the GX4, but very superior coating to really anything out there. Um, and then the tan, tan slide, tan grip. Can we say Coyote? That's how I like to say it. Coyote. Um, And for all the nerds like me, yes, everything's co-witnessed with the red dot, suppressor sight, heights, all the whiz-bang things, and the triggers are flat, not triangular. That's right. Big fan. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, so those little details I think are super important. I'm I'm a trigger snob. I was when I was at Walther, um, you know, really spoiled with the triggers that they had. So, like, that's one of the things I'm going to focus the most on has to be the right trigger. Um, of course the drop safety, all that stuff has to be sound. We test all of that, but like the trigger, I want a shorter take up. I want a crisp break. Um, you know, this, this is a carry gun. It's about a six pound trigger. When we do a full version of that, the trigger will be longer. So mm-hmm. you'll have more leverage on it and it'll feel a little bit lighter. It'll be the exact same trigger. Um, so really cool features on it. Well, the way it handles too. So I rocked an M&P when it kind of first came out, yep. um, for a long time, still have one in the safe or two, but the the grip feels as narrow so i expected a seven or you know eight plus one but we're at 10 11 plus one on this bad boy yeah and that one has the extended base pad so it's actually 13 yeah plus one doesn't feel like it the grip doesn't match the capacity that you're rocking so that's pretty rad so what's next what should people be looking for from taurus man i think we're uh we're kind of poised to start moving into some new directions that i think are really fun you know i think you know we've talked a lot i'm a very passionate hunter um, we don't play a lot in that space. I think we can do some innovative things that, uh, would really be groundbreaking. I don't necessarily want to be a, you know, price point bolt action type of company. I, you know, go to toe to toe with Savage. That's not something I think we would yeah. do well or have any interest in doing. Um, but I think we can do some pretty, pretty interesting things in that space. You know, we already do some long guns, do really well with them with lever action stuff like that. Um, but I think it's time to kind of move into that that okay. space. Well, that's then, exciting. Yeah, that, th- that's that's the world that I play in. Like you guys talk tactics and pistols all you want, but the, yeah. the hunting stuff gets me really worked up. Yeah, but do me a favor. Like I, I have a small branch of me, and that's a T and E department. Don't sure. send anything to Baker. Yeah, no. Okay, send it all to me. I'll, I'll take you. I'll take your word on it. <laughs> yeah, this is good. Okay, fine. Works for me. Um, that's exciting, man. So, um, Brett, where can people find you? Or Taurus, where can they find Taurus? Yeah, Taurus USA on Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter. I don't know if we're on Twitter. I think you, we are on Twitter. You, yes, you have a Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Not my you department. Right, there you um, go. <laughs> no, uh, and then you know TaurusUSA.com. Um, our our other brands, HeritageManufacturing.com, Rossi USA. Um, you know, really wide product mm-hmm. lines with a lot of different stuff. So. A lot of exciting things happening there. That's cool, man. Well, listen, dude, we appreciate you coming yeah. on. Yeah, awesome, thank man. you. We thank you for the, the great chat. coffee and good chat. Yeah, yeah it was a lot of fun. Appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. That concludes today's training. Any questions? Woo! Drum titties, boy!